Let me tell you something about heaven. Open up your Bible to 1 John chapter 3. 1 John 3, 2. We're going to study verses 2 through 9. 1 John 3, 2. Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be. But we shall know that when, we, that when he is revealed, but we know that when he is revealed, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Look at what the Bible says about your future in heaven. If Jesus Christ is your Lord, if you're living for him, if you've given him your life, surrendered, he's taken your sin, you've taken on his righteousness. If you believed in Jesus, it says here that you know him. You know his heart. You know his character. You know his will. You know his kingdom. As his children, we do know God. But here it says that we don't fully know him yet. He's been revealed, but not completely. There's going to be a completion of that revealing in a coming day. On this side of heaven, our vision is blurred to some extent. This is what it says in 1 Corinthians 13, 12. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. For I know in part, but then I shall know just as I also am known. What we know of the Lord is wonderful. We have our questions. We're, cu we're curious about certain things, about his nature, about his actions. But we know firsthand his love, and it's greater than any love we've ever known. We know his mercy. But that's not all this, that's not all this verse says, is it? We know him. We'll know him more fully. We'll see him as he is. But look, it says here that there will come a day when our faith will become our eyes. There will come a day when we will see him as he is. He will be revealed in all of his glory. You'll see the Lord in his splendor. You'll behold the Lord in his majesty. Say this with King David. This is what it says in the Psalms. Psalm 27, 4. One thing I have desired of the Lord, that I will seek after that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to behold the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. The king said, I want to see you, Lord. There'll come a day for the rest of my days when I'll see you with my eyes. I'll behold your splendor, your glory. You'll be completely revealed to me. Oh, how wonderful that will be. But there's something else that's also earth-shattering, isn't it? And you know what it is if you read the verse. It says, we shall be like him. That means you and I, with the brightness of the everlasting God beaming through us, his heart beating in us, his mission accomplished in us, we're going to behold the Lord and we're going to be like him. We can't fathom that. I have the faith to believe that we'll be like him, but I can't fit that in my head. King David also said this in Psalm 17, 15, as for me, I will behold thy face in righteousness. I will be satisfied when I awake with thy likeness. I'm not fully satisfied right now, are you? With what you know of God, who you know him to be? You're supposed to thirst for more, and there will come a day when we will see him as he is, and we will be as he is. You'll wake up in heaven beholding Jesus and 
being like Jesus, looking at the Holy One and being holy. I'm tired of the flesh. I'm tired of the lust of the flesh. I'm tired of how our bodies break down, how we get sick. We're crumbling. Dealing. There's a restlessness, and you know it. And when we see Jesus, we're going to be like him. Does that bring hope to your heart? Does that bring promise to your heart? No more sickness, no more sorrows, no more death. Now, it's not that you're just going to be the best you that you've ever experienced. It's not just that you're going to be in tip-top shape or at whatever you consider your prime age to be. No, no, that's not what the Word of God is saying. When you see him, you'll be like him. Going to be like Jesus. We don't even know what that really means, but we know it's going to be really, really, really good. And everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. So let me point this out to you, first of all. Let this hope purify you. What's the hope that verse 3 speaks of? The hope of seeing Jesus, isn't it? The promise that we will behold the beauty of the Lord. That's the hope. The hope of him rapturing you up into the clouds. The hope of going to the place that he has prepared to you. That's the hope. And when we see him, we'll be like him. So if you have that hope of seeing Jesus, then let it purify you. If right now you don't long for purity, it might be because you don't have the hope of seeing Jesus. If you lack the desire to be a new man, a new woman, a new creation in Christ, it might be because you're not expectantly living for that day when you will see Jesus. Because that hope does something in our hearts and our lives. It purifies, purifies the very way that we live. We sang, Scandal of Grace, Oh, to be like you, to give all I have just to know you. Jesus, there's no one beside you, forever the hope in my heart. What lofty words. Are they true of us? Oh, that I would be like you. That desire to be like the Lord isn't supposed to be postponed until heaven. We're not supposed to look at the scriptures. I don't see that it says this. Well, when I see the Lord in glory, I'll be like him. But right now, I can just settle with who I am. If you have the hope of seeing him, you have the desire to live a pure life. It's inconsistent. It's illogical to say, I know I'll see Jesus one day, but until then, I'm just going to roll around in the flesh. Until then, I'm just going to live like a pig. I'm just going to chase after whatever desire floats into my mind or my heart. Or, does this make sense? Since my Savior's coming, I'm just going to sin it up. No, it doesn't. If you have the desire to see Jesus, then he also puts in you a desire to be pure. Now, that follow-through is by the Spirit, not by our own strength. But yet, do you have that desire to be set apart for him, to live a life that is distinctly of Jesus? When he comes for me, I don't want to be living for money. When he comes, I don't want to be idle. When he comes, I don't want to be envious or jealous or vindictive. When he comes, I don't want to be watching porn. When he comes, I don't want to be drunk. When he comes, I want to be purely pleasing to him. 
He's my influencer. Is he yours? He moves me. He motivates me. He refines you. He rejuvenates you. He restores you. That is our Jesus. I want to be clean. That want certainly doesn't come from Eddie. That desire, that different desire to be set apart, it doesn't come from your flesh either. It comes from the hope. It comes from the promise that you'll see Jesus. The phrase purifies himself doesn't mean that we power the transformation ourselves. It means that we willingly submit to the transformation, that we make provision for the things of the spirit and not the things of the flesh. Do you find yourself at times not submitting willingly to the transformation that the Lord wants to accomplish in your life? I sure do. I know I can't change myself. This purify himself means, Lord, I surrender. I'm not doing the work, but I certainly am not gonna fight against you. I'm living for you, not for myself. I saw an article last week about an actor, who, and it caught my eye because I was studying this, and it said that he has this new pure life. That word pure caught my attention because of this verse. I, I would say the actor's name, but I just couldn't stomach hearing all the oohs and, and the ahs. Oh, oh, probably stumble you just by saying it. He's that cute. <laughs> this pure life changes because he found out that he has an increased risk for for Alzheimer's disease because of a certain gene, the APOE4. And so he supposedly has this purity now going in his life. And, and he said, this is what purity is to him. I do a lot of meditation and breath work, mostly during sauna and ice bath routines. For me, my favorite mindfulness work comes from the immersion in physical activities that allow me to be fully present and force me out of my head and into my body, in particular, surfing. So if he can put all that, all these measures into not having his mind crumble, why would we not take measures to be pure for Christ? Real purity for the real one. His focus is on stalling death. Our focus is on seeing our Savior. Don't just postpone the grim reaper. Is that what we're trying to do? I, I know we do that to some extent. We're like, what do I eat? Am I exercising? Am I sleeping? But prepare for the keeper of all eternity, the Lord of heaven, the matchless one. Psalm 119.9. How can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. So let this hope purify you. We're definitely not earning our way to God. But since he's our father, we do want to please him. Look at the beginning of two. Let's go back to that. Beloved, now we are children of God. So I hope I counted right. I think 12 times in this book, John says beloved. And that means you're the one that I love. You're my loved one. That's the phrase. We should bring that back. Beloved, the one that I love. But now I want you to pay attention. Even though he writes, you're the ones that I love. He also writes about sin 10 times in the next six verses, if you were to count it, verses four through nine. So a heart of love is really expressed in this letter. He does love those that he is writing to, but he doesn't fail to speak the truth. In fact, he speaks the truth in love. That's what he does. He cares for them. But because he cares for them, 
he is willing to deliver the conviction that they need for their lives. That's real love. Now, sometimes we desire to love, but we fall short because we don't speak the truth. Did you hear me? I didn't say sometimes we love, but we don't speak the truth. No, that wouldn't be love. Sometimes we desire to love, but we fall short because we don't speak the truth. We've been prompted by the Lord to love, but we're too vague. We've been prompted by the Lord to love, but we want to avoid confrontation. We've been prompted to love, but we don't want to make somebody upset. Or we want our loved one to like us. So even though our aim is to love, sometimes we don't follow through with the truth that makes it real love. I certainly struggle with this, do you? You love somebody, your, your heart's being prompted to love them, you know you need to speak with them, but you're too afraid. God's stirring up your mind and your heart, but the, the follow-through, the conviction, the conversation is just going to be so difficult. And if you're like me, I'm afraid I'm going to lose them, so to speak, that they're going to shrink back from, from what I say, even though I do love them and, and I want to speak the truth into love. And I think I don't want to push them away. In reality, if I were to speak the truth in love, I wouldn't be pushing them away. Because that's what God uses to draw us in, isn't it? Now, people can choose to let the truth spoken in love to cause them to pull away. They can make that wrong decision, can't they? But it's not because we have chosen to love them by speaking the truth. They may make the wrong decision, but the truth in love is a tool of God. If we speak the truth in love, then the right response is forgiveness and restoration. So please rest in that. If the Lord has stirred your heart to love somebody and you know that you need to speak with them, you're not pushing them away. They may choose to go away. They may choose the wrong decision. But when you love them by speaking the truth, that is a tool of the Lord. But then sometimes it's the reverse, isn't it? We speak the truth, but it isn't in love. We're technically accurate, but our heart is, is off. Some of you are saying amen to, to both of these. It's, it's Sometimes I'm one, sometimes I'm the other. Sometimes I'm Henry, sometimes I'm Sam. Sometimes I'm in the flesh, sometimes I'm in my own wanderings. You're angry, so you go to somebody, you speak the truth, but it's not in love. Now, let me clarify. The truth is, love isn't always soft. Let's put it that way. Sometimes it can be very stern, but it's an issue of our hearts. It depends on the circumstance and the dynamic. At the same time, the perspective shouldn't be, I said what's right. I said the words. I hit him right between the eyes. Oh, yeah, I stuck it to him. That's not what it's supposed to be. But I point this out to you because if you're going to study First John with us, this book is just a wonderful example of the truth in love. There's a whole lot of care coming through the letter but there's also a whole lot of conviction at the same time. He gets the truth across, love verbally. To me, and I hope to you, that's what the scriptures are. I open up my Bible. Where else am I going to find perfect love? Nowhere else. Where else am I going to find perfect truth? Nowhere else. The word of God is the truth in love to me and to you. Do you believe it? Do you see it? 
That combo is why we clamor for the word of God. Come and drink. Come and be filled. Open up your word. Open up his word and say, Lord, I know you're going to speak to me because you care for me. Is there any doubt that the Lord loves you, Christian? No, he loves you. Is there any doubt that he's filled his word with truth that we can put it into our lives? No, there it is. The truth and love spoken to you by the Lord. Absorb it. Be a vessel of that truth and love. So that second point is receive the truth and love. Yeah, I know we talked about being a conduit for that, but are you willing to receive it? If it's really true and it's really the love of Jesus, yes, Lord, we'll receive it. Whoever commits sin, I set you up for this, also commits lawlessness and sin is lawlessness. So point number three, define sin as breaking God's law. That's an application. That's a way of thinking. It's a way of living. How do you define sin? It gives it to us right here in verse four. Sin is breaking God's law. Now I realize that there are sins of omission. There are sins of commission. There are sins of our motives, of our intentions. We can sin with our words. We certainly can sin with our actions. The Bible is so specific, sometimes so specific that it doesn't fit our tastes when we're desiring temptation instead of the truth. But you and I, we don't get to make up what is right and what is wrong. People don't get to determine what's sin and what isn't sin. The Lord gives it to us because our feelings will lie to us. And isn't this the way of the world? Let's redefine what's right and what's wrong. Let's get you to accept that which is sin by just exposing you to it over and over again. Christian, are you mindful of this? If you're around sin, you're watching sin, you're observing sin, pretty soon it just becomes normal to you, doesn't it? That's indoctrination. Oh, I see it so much. I hear it so much. I know so many people that are living that way. How can it really be wrong? Well, because God says it's wrong. It breaks his law. Now here, once again, in the context of the Gnostics who were prevalent in the day of John, and Gnosticism, neo-Gnosticism is still with us today, they are those that make light of sin. The Gnostics said and still say today, oh, it's no big deal. It's just your body. It's not your soul. Just do what you want. Right is what feels right. It, it, it might not sit well with you, but that doesn't mean it isn't sin. So you see, right here in four, lawlessness is sin. The guilty, the accused, says to the judge, I feel fine about what I did. It was justified. It was okay according to me. I have legitimate reasons for what I did. Now that we're exposed to almost every heinous crime that happens in our country, we also get to hear the arguments that get fronted by the defense, right? And sometimes you just, do you read that? You're just like, man, look at all these excuses for the crime that's been committed. This is why it's okay that I did this terrible thing. And it's just mind-boggling to read of the things that people do and why they consider it to be justified. Do we realize that that way of thinking is not of God, it's of the enemy? The good judge says to that accused person, you broke the law. You don't get to define what's right and wrong. That's defined by God. 
define sin as breaking God's law instead of measuring it up like, oh, what are the people doing around me? What do I see? What, what feels right to me? And you know that he was manifested to take away our sins, and in, and in him there is no sin. So God revealed himself. Jesus came to remove our sins. He showed himself to us so that we could be set free, pardoned, forgiven. Reminds you of John three seventeen, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. So God showed himself to us so that we could be forgiven. The end of the verse says that Jesus is perfect. He was sinless. He is sinless. This is to refute the Gnostics who said if Jesus had a human body, he must be a sinner like the rest of us. It also says to set the record straight that Jesus was our perfect sacrifice because he is sinless, because he was sinless. He alone is qualified to be our substitute. Now, as we get into speaking about sin and the word sets the record straight for us about when we break God's law, let's admit our faults and aim for righteousness. That's point number four. Admit our faults and aim for righteousness. This is really important because some would read just this section by itself and think to themselves, Maybe we're not, we don't sin anymore once we're children of God. They would take just these verses and separate them from the rest of what the book says and the rest of what the whole of the Bible says, and they could come to that false interpretation of the Scriptures. Can you imagine how discouraging that would be? You submit your life to the Lord, you believe upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, and somebody's teaching you, once you're saved, you don't sin anymore, and then you keep sinning, of course. And you'd say, what's wrong with me? I must not be saved. Now, we can't just take these verses out of context, but this belief system that once you're saved, you could possibly reach a spiritual level of maturity where you wouldn't sin anymore, that's just not true. When, when I was just a kid, we went to a church in Oroville. We were a part of that church over there. And even though I was pretty young, I remember that something really shook our church. There was a man, an older gentleman, and he was really consistent about his attendance. I mean, he, if the doors were open, he was there. And boy, could he pray publicly. He was a great public prayer. But this man, we'll call him the supposedly sinless, supposedly sinless one, had some really wacky ways of thinking. He actually believed that he had reached a place of spiritual maturity where he didn't sin anymore. And he said that, he hadn't sinned for years. And he pointed to this passage. I remember talking to my dad about it, and I said, how could he think this? Well, he's taking this portion of Scripture out of context. And I remember when the church found out about his claim to sinlessness, it caused quite a stir, because he was among us. He was a part of us. He was there all the time. And some people said, well, he is pretty great. He is pretty amazing. Maybe he is sinless. I mean, he does come to church a lot. And he can pray really well out loud, so maybe he is sinless. Entertaining that idea a little bit. And others were bent upon proving his depravity. <laughs> so I won't reveal their names, even though they're most certainly dead at this point. But we'll call it the supposedly sinless one. 
and the salty Christian. We had a guy at our church, and this guy was always pushing the envelope. He was obviously saying things that he shouldn't say. He, he wasn't very sanctified. He was the kind of person that you just, you had to kind of warn yourself or, you know, when you're around him, hey, kids, you know, Salty might say some things, right? <laughs> so Salty find out, found out that this man was supposedly sinless. And he started, after service one evening, talking to him about his motives about his pride, about his thoughts, about his sins of omission, and even said, I'm going to ask your wife if she thinks you're sinless <laughs> and been sinless. for." And Salty was just pouring it on to supposedly sinless. And supposedly sinless started to get really upset. And he got up in Salty's face. He turned red, called him some names, stormed out, slammed the door, and peeled off in the parking lot. And Salty smiled, of course. <laughs> because he proved what we already knew, that nobody is sinless on this side of heaven except for Jesus. Nobody is sinless. So as we read these verses, don't think for a second. In fact, take it in context. Go back to the last verse of chapter 1. Isn't that verse 10? If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. So, this whole idea that we're going to reach a plateau where we don't sin anymore is just not true. Now, even though we sin, what was the topic? Admit our faults and aim for righteousness. We should not live lives that are dominated by sin. We need to see in these verses that we have a completely new heritage, a new nature. And if you don't aim for righteousness, in fact, let me put it this way because it's accurate. If you don't aim for righteousness then you're not going to hit righteousness. This idea that we're just going to accidentally become godly is just silly, isn't it? This idea that if we're not precise, that if we don't say, Jesus, make me like you, you're not going to hit what you aren't aiming for, right? It just doesn't happen that way. Now, every once in a while, you, you get lucky. But are you going to live a lifestyle of being like Jesus if that's not what you're aiming for? So we're admitting that we're sinners, but at the same time, we're aiming for the righteousness of Jesus Christ in our lives. That because we're forgiven, saved by grace through faith, that he would make us live out what it means to be a new creature. Whoever abides in him does not sin. Whoever sins has neither seen him nor known him. Whoever sins has neither seen him nor known him. So the next point, abide in Christ so you won't sin. A boy, to sing that song, Abide, that's our hearts, isn't it? Lord, I want to abide in you. I want you to be my abode. If you aren't abiding in Christ, then you will sin. But if you're abiding in Christ, then you, will, you won't sin. And that doesn't mean you go back and forth between being a child of God and not being a child of God. That's not what it means. It means sometimes we willfully leave the protection, provision, and the power of our abode. And our abode is Christ. We're to be in him. He's our dwelling place. And when we're dwelling in him, we don't sin. It's when we, we leave our abode and we operate in the flesh instead of in the spirit that we sin. Isn't that the truth? I remind you of Galatians 5.16 where it says, walk in the spirit and you will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. 
So you can't commit sin when you're walking in the Spirit. But if you're not walking in the Spirit, you can commit sin. You cannot commit sin if you're abiding in Christ, if you're connected to Him and you're feeding off of His power and His wisdom in your life. But if you take a detour and you decide, I'm going to live in my own strength, I'm going to follow my own depravity, then we certainly have the capacity to sin in so many ways. Jesus said, I am the vine, you are the branches. Stay connected to Jesus. Teach me to abide in you, Lord. As you walk with God, as as you move forward with knowing him better and better, is that abiding happening more often? Are you more strongly connected to the Lord? Because nobody ever started sinning more by abiding with Christ. It's not as though we can say, well, I'm abiding in Christ, but I'm sinning. No, no, no. We're children of God, purchased by his blood. But if we don't abide in him, we're going to wander off into sin. Little children, let no one deceive you. He who practices righteousness is righteous, just as he is righteous. He who sins is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. For this purpose, the Son of God was manifested, that he might destroy the works of the devil. Whoever has been born of God does not sin, for his seed remains in him, and he cannot sin because he has been born of God. So our final point is, be like your father. Once again, in the context of the culture, this is rebuking the Gnostics who taught that they could live in sin and still be close to God. You can see that it's part of a warning. Look at there in verse 7, to not be deceived. So it relates to false teachers. Aren't there some today who operate this way? Yeah, I'm lustful. Yeah, I'm greedy. Yeah, I'm prideful but I'm strong spiritually. No way. That, that's inconsistent. These verses are not talking about those who stumble into sin. These verses are not talking about those who miss the mark. They're aiming at the bullseye of righteousness, but they miss. It's talking about those who practice sin, those who live a lifestyle of sin, those who wake up in the morning and say, how can I sin? How can I be a better sinner than I was yesterday, right? How can I be more skilled in sin? Wake up looking for it, not born of God. The direction of a person's life can't be in pursuit of sin and the pursuit of God at the same time. This is what the word teaches us. What else does it teach us? That any life aimed at breaking God's law is of the devil. The most convicting, convicting things that you're, you'll hear are not from the preacher, first and foremost. They're from the Word of God. Isn't that what the Bible says right here? It might seem extreme to you, but that's what the Word says. It's not a small matter. It's major. So the preacher, the prince of preachers, they call him, Charles Spurgeon, said this, a grace that doesn't change you can't save you. If you've made up some kind of grace in your mind, and it's not a life-changing grace, that isn't the saving grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. His grace saves us and changes us, makes us new. Be like your father. Verse 9, our closing verse, explains why. It's right there. As children of God, we have inherited his likeness. We have a new nature. 
We have his seed in us. That means you have the spiritual genetics to do what is good. Just the way a parent, biological parent, is connected to their child. It says here, God has put his seed in you, and that's why you can walk in righteousness. It's not because you're good. It's not because you're earning your way. It's because you are being made into my likeness. Be just like your father. If you're in a season of doubt right now, if you're in a time where your faith in the Lord is shrinking, I want you to see that if your faith in the Lord is shrinking, then it means your faith in sin is growing. If, if you're doubting him more and more, then you're beginning to believe in sin more and more. If you're in that season, grapple, seek the Lord. Come, study, and see what the reality about sin really is. Follow sin to its ends. Follow sin to where it leads. Look at the world. Look at the word. Where does sin lead? That which is lawlessness to God. The things that break God's commands in his word. Where do they end up? In hopelessness, in selfishness, in regret, in destruction, in disillusionment. That's where sin leads. It leads to destruction eternally and even in this life. Get in there and investigate. If doubt is creeping in, say, so am I going to believe in the path of sin? Am I really going to believe what the enemy is telling me and the world is telling me that this sin is going to fill me up? It's going to satisfy me. It's going to lead me to fullness. It's going to lead me to eternity. If you're doubting God more and more, then you're putting your trust somewhere. Anyone who doubts the path of salvation and sanctification is automatically trusting in sin more, and that'll lead to nothing good. Now, with that said, I know that's very truthful. All of us struggle with doubt. There's not a person here, and maybe after hearing about the supposedly sinless one, you wouldn't raise your hand, that doesn't have doubts. And sometimes we think, when I have doubts about God, when I have doubts about the nature of God, or why God does things this way, or, or why his word doesn't address this area more, or why it seems like the wicked are prospering. You guys, those answers are in the word. And sometimes it is true that we don't know exactly why, but we have to put our faith somewhere. And putting it in sin makes no sense whatsoever. Look at the destruction that comes when we decide, when the world decides to break the law of God. What a great God he is to save us by his grace and then protect us with his good commandments. Today, if you think commandment keeping is going to make you right with the Lord, you've believed the lie of the world. Commandment keeping will never make you right with God. You can only be right with him by faith in him, by putting your trust in him as your master, as your king. By saying, take my sin, Lord, I know you paid for it on the cross, and I'll take your righteousness. Praise you, Jesus, for doing that for me. As we study what it means to journey closer to the heart of God, don't think that you just need to pull yourself up by your bootstraps and be a better person. No. 
Come and receive the grace of Jesus so he can sanctify you, so he can transform you from the inside out. Oh Lord, each one of us, we stand here sinners, but so many of us stand here as sinners that have been set free from our sin. So many of us stand here, even though we've fallen a lot of times, we're not hopeless. We have hope. We have promise. We have everything because of you, Lord Jesus. I pray that we would rightly understand the yearning that's within us to be like you. We praise you for the day when we'll see you. We look forward with anticipation. I also pray for those that haven't put their faith in you, but they've put their faith in this world, this world that's going down the tubes. I pray for them, Lord. They've put them, their faith in, in their own supposed wisdom or their own strength. And I pray that they would see the folly for what it is and that they would surrender to the path that's perfect and true. What love you've given us to put us on that path, Jesus. I pray for your people that they would seek you in your word, that they would be grounded in it. I pray that we'd have deep roots into what is good so that when the wind blows and the trials come, we'll stand firm in you, Jesus, and in you alone. We pray in your name. Amen.